Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast, where we discuss medical mysteries and entertain you with curious and uncommon case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from real people, history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. Ten-year-old Jessica presents to the emergency department after suffering a heart attack. The doctors were shocked. How does a 10-year-old suffer from the same kind of heart attack people get late in life, usually due to decades of an unhealthy lifestyle? At 4 foot 1 and 170 pounds, with a BMI of almost 50%, one doctor assumes the morbid part of her obesity was the root cause of her heart attack. He was wrong. Hello, welcome back. We are at episode four. We made it again. I feel like we're going to say that every week. We made it. Yep. We're just going to keep counting until we're gonna keep doing it. we take a break. <laughs> so today we're super excited to bring another really interesting topic to you. We are going to be talking about haze or healthy at every size. This is a topic that probably doesn't get enough attention other than in the media in relation to models and maybe like Dove beauty campaigns. We don't ever really talk about how it affects people in medicine, or at least I don't hear a lot about it. So I'm really excited to chat about this. Neither do I. And we were just talking um, off record about someone who I know recently who had this whole issue with medical care and seeking the proper care partially due to her size and not receiving what she needed. So this is a really big issue. And like Hillary said, not spoken about super often. So this will be a good one. Yes. Shining light onto spaces in medicine that need more attention because the more eyes that have seen a particular diagnosis or have seen a particular case, the more likely they are to catch it again in the future and share with their colleagues so their colleagues can catch it as well. And I don't know about you, but I find that when I listen to podcasts or read Medscape articles or whatever about conditions, I remember those ones sometimes more than the ones like we've learned about in classes. And sometimes they're still in the back of my head as potential differentials or just as conditions that I seem to remember more about listening to them or having them presented to me in this way than just from a textbook. Definitely. I think anytime you add in that personal connection, you know, something that takes it off the page and puts it more into your mind is like, Hey, this is a real person. This isn't just a statistic. And don't get me wrong, I do get excited talking about statistics and how diseases affect populations, but ultimately the individual doesn't care about that. And when we're talking about individual cases, we have to take it away from the abstract and the numbers and really focus on the person who's sitting in front of us and how can we help this person, this individual right here. And just because it's rare, strange, or unusual doesn't mean you're never going to see it in practice and should forget about it. The rare, strange, and unusual should stick in the back of your mind. 
Yes. And I feel like the rare, strange and unusual is also what's missed a lot. So that's what we're here to do is bring light to those things. Yes. Rare, strange and unusual. Just put that on my tombstone when I die. (laughs) Sounds good. I'll let Jared know. (laughs) All right. Why don't you introduce to our listeners what Healthy at Every Size actually is? Great. So uh, Healthy at Every Size is an idea uh, pioneered by Dr. Lindo Bacon. So he earned his PhD in physiology from UC Davis. He currently serves as a professor there, as well as a nutritionist. And he has extensive history uh, of teaching in health education, psychology, women's studies, biology, as well as education. He's also conducted a lot of federally funded research studies, mainly based on health and weight that have been published in top scientific journals. Uh, interestingly enough, one of my dear friends, don't worry, I'll leave you nameless because I know you're shy, actually did his postdoc at UC Davis. And I was lucky enough to go down and tour the university while he was there. And yeah, it's world renowned for its research department. So I'm interested to hear more about Dr. Lando Bacon. Yeah, for sure. So the research has, like I said, been supported by several grants in the Department of Agriculture, as well as National Institutions of Health. He is industry independent, and he doesn't take money from weight loss, pharmaceuticals, or the food industry, which is super important because every time you read a research study, I always scroll to the bottom before I sometimes even read the paper to see past the conclusion if there are any conflicts of interest and also who funded the study because that is a form of bias, as we know, and it's really important to acknowledge that that if they're studying this drug, Well, yeah, it was put on by the company that made the drug. So there is a form of bias there. And that's the whole point of science is to try and be unbiased and to remove as much bias as possible so that our findings can be objective. So I really like the fact that Dr. Bacon doesn't take any industry money and doesn't sort of have any like corporate brand sponsors or any brand loyalties that he's touting. Yeah. And I think that helps him speak truth and it's, it almost for me makes it more honest, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. So Dr. Bacon's advocacy for body respect has generated a large following on social media platforms, which I think is really important because social media is a place where so many people turn for advice, for fitness, for health, for nutrition. And Fitgram. Exactly. Fitstagram. And it's really important that we have people on there that are body positive people and people in this movement, because you do see so much of your stereotypical skinny white fitness woman who has been blessed with great genetics. And sometimes people will literally never look like her, but social media has obviously, as we know, this is not news, made it seem like anyone can look like her. And it's not just women, it's men too. There's an increasing number of men with body dysmorphia. And a lot of it is often linked again to what you were just talking about, which is this uh, representation on social media and that it's very one note. And we tend to have this idea of Adam and Eve who are thin and have abs and that those are the beauty standards that we should aspire to but more than just the beauty that those are also the health standards that we should aspire to. And that's, I think where it gets really dangerous, especially if your doctor thinks the only way you can be healthy is if you look like that as well. 
it's really interesting to hear that Dr. Bacon is not only industry independent, but also body inclusive. So what I really like about Dr. Bacon is that he is committed to centralizing ways in which power, privilege, and disadvantage complicate the whole experience of someone's body. So not knowing that it's not just, you know, your lifestyle, but there's so many other aspects. And he brings a really great twofold perspective of academic expertise as well as clinical experience. And he kind of helps provide a link between scientific research, but also that practical application, which I think it's not just all about the science and all about the research. People have lives and there's so many other aspects that contribute to health. As we know, there's all the social determinants of health. There is genetics and I could go on about everything. And it's literally not just science. And you can't just say, eat less, exercise more anymore. It doesn't work. And it's been proven time and time again. So because of this dual perspective, translating science into practical and actionable terms, this helps healthcare professionals bring authority and compassion to their work, as well as help patients with personal difficulties, weight regulation, eating disorders, and other complex health conditions to help overcome them and provide them the tools to succeed in their health. Yeah, he's really embodying that naturopathic principle of doctor as teacher. So not only are you going to have the knowledge from the textbooks of how to help someone get better, but you're also an educator and you are able to communicate that in a meaningful way to the patient that is going to be beneficial and helpful to them. Absolutely. And I love tying in Doceri or doctor as a teacher into this because we, that is personally my favorite principle. And I think that by empowering our patients and educating them, they're able to make so many more decisions on their own and make the right ones. And I think it's really something for patients to know a lot about their condition and what they're doing for it. There's something really special about that. And I, I can see that in patients too. Yeah. And it's a, I understand it's a complex subject, you know, how do you take four years of medical school and distill that into meaningful information that's going to convey something useful to the patient that number one, isn't too simplistic, but also isn't overly complicated where they don't understand. And this is really the art of science. And it sounds like Dr. Bacon really embodies that art of science approach. Then I really appreciate that. It's so funny that you mentioned mixing art with science to get medicine because I was with a friend today, totally off topic, but she said something about being an artist and I was like, oh, I'm not an artist. And I was like, wait, actually, I really like the fact that we are bringing art and science together. And I, after I thought about it more, I realized that actually I'm an artist, just not your stereotypical painter or drawer, but in a whole other aspect. Look at this. Our podcast is even helping us. I knew we were doing this for a reason. We totally are. So Hayes is a movement that includes the following basic components. So respect, critical awareness, and compassionate self-care. I think these are super important. And these three pillars are really the foundation and as they should be. So respecting includes celebrating body diversity, as well as honoring differences in size, age, race, ethnicity, gender, disability, sexual orientation, religion, class, and other human attributes. And so, yeah, just accepting humans as being a humans. I don't really understand why that is like such a volatile or such a controversial 
subject, but yes, respect people as they are as humans on this planet, regardless of how they identify, regardless of what age, sex, race, religion, sexual orientation they're in. Yeah, you would think that now it shouldn't be controversial. However, unfortunately, it still is. So critical awareness challenges scientific and cultural assumptions. So we'll get into more of the assumptions later, but it also values body knowledge and lived experiences. So we have no idea what someone's body has been through. We don't know if they have been through trauma, if they've had injuries, their health history until we talk about it. There's so many things that we don't know, and we cannot make assumptions until we find out that information. And there's nothing good about assumptions. So I think that critical awareness is super vital here. Yeah. And it also kind of ties into not necessarily, this isn't a naturopathic principle, but it's definitely uh, a consideration when we're doing a health history or doing a patient intake. And that's, you know, asking what do you think the source of your troubles are? What do you feel are the reasons why you have these concerns? And it's true. A lot of times you get answers like, I don't know, because sometimes people truly don't know what the cause of their discomfort is. But other times you get amazing, insightful answers because people really are the experts on their own body. So the third and final pillar of the Hayes movement is compassionate self-care, something that I think everyone should practice regardless of whether you are a part of this movement or not. Super important for everyone. So this encompasses finding the joy in moving one's body being physically active, as well as eating in a flexible and attuned manner that values pleasure and honors internal cues of hunger, satiety, and appetite, all while respecting the social conditions that frame eating options. Wow. Yeah, that is very important. Uh, again, it, it, like you mentioned, this doesn't seem to be an inclusive pillar of just haze. This is something I think everyone can benefit from. So moving on, I think what another point that Dr. Bacon made is that we've lost the war on obesity. Fighting fat has not made fat go away. Being thinner. Wow, good point. Right? And being thinner, even if we knew how to successfully accomplish it, would not necessarily make us healthier or happier. I literally think that should be my motto in life. And it's true. Like there are still people you see who go through extreme weight loss and really lose weight. And it's great. And they thought that losing weight or becoming a certain size or having a certain body in the end would equal happiness. And that could not be more false. So I really love that even if we could all be thin, the world would not necessarily be a better place. The world would not be happier per se. No. And you're actually reminding me of a study that was done or some research that was done um, in relation to money and happiness of all things. Cause I think that kind of goes along the line of like body image and appearing and having this um, appearance of wealth or feeling like you're wealthy. And you know, what, what the research suggested was, okay, well, will money make you happy? And the answer is kind of yes and no, right? If you have no money, if you have no shelter, if you have no food, you're not going to be very happy or feel very secure. But the idea that then more money will mean more happiness does not actually prove to be true. And I'll link to the original research in the show notes because I can't remember it off the top of my head now. But I think there was an upper limit of like $70,000. And I can't remember the exact location where the population was based, but it was in North America. And 
after $70,000 as an individual, if you make more money, you're not going to be more happy. And I mean, obviously there's, you know, going to be a, a, a range there, but that parallel to body size, I think is also very important just because you're this ideal size, you're going to be happy. That's, a, that's a fallacy. That's a facade. It, it, that's not real. And you have to focus. Wow. I'm like channeling my inner counselor now, but you have to find your happiness. Now you have to figure out what does what you need to do to be happy now and tailor your life to that feeling instead of chasing it through external measures. I really like the analogy with money because ultimately it's the same thing. And I think something I read somewhere, and again, I don't remember where, but it said that weight loss and becoming happy with your body doesn't come from hating yourself. You really have to love yourself first, as stupid as that sounds. And I know I sound ridiculous saying, and I feel ridiculous saying, but it's the truth. I don't think it sounds ridiculous either. I think people can resonate with that feeling of, oh, if I just do this one other thing, then I'll be happy. Oh, if I just accomplish this one other goal, then I'll be able to relax. And that's the wrong mindset. Don't get me wrong. It's good to be motivated and it's good to have goals. But if you're just constantly chasing the next win or the next weight loss or the next dollar, the next pound off and not focusing about being happy right now with who you are, you're not going to gain any traction. I completely agree. So extensive collateral damage has resulted. Food and body preoccupation, self-hatred, like I just said, eating disorders, discrimination, poor health. Very few people actually have peace with their bodies. So to sum it all up, now that I feel like I have talked about Dr. Bacon like he is my god, Haze is an inclusive movement that accepts and recognizes our social characteristics such as our size, nationality, sexuality, gender, disability status, and all other attributes are just assets. And it acknowledges and challenges the systemic forces that impinge on living well and healthy. Wow. I love that. That's great, isn't it? And I think that's a great way to kind of wrap up the whole idea of it. So despite these amazing ideas, this movement I just spoke about, fat phobia still exists and is sadly still a huge issue in medicine. Doctors are still dismissing medical complaints of fat people simply based on their BMI and physical appearance. And as Hillary and I will soon speak about, BMI is a ridiculous measurement and honestly should just be thrown out because it is no indication of someone's actual health. No. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how BMI is kind of a great number for a group of people when we're looking at measuring a bunch of people in a group. But when it comes to the individual person sitting in front of us, it does nothing to address their health status. You know, BMI is strictly just a calculation based off of someone's height and weight. And it puts you on a graph that says whether or not you're underweight, overweight, or a quote unquote normal weight range. And that that somehow is a prediction on your health. And okay, maybe in some people it does accurately predict their health, but for many people it does not, especially when we're talking about women, especially when we're talking about what would be considered an obese woman. And it does not take into consideration the fat carrying capacity of each individual. And that is often genetically determined. And like you were talking about earlier too, two people 
could do the exact same exercises, eat the exact same foods every single day for 30 years and still have two completely different bodies. And that body size itself has no impact on their health. No. And in fact, it could be the reverse where the person you see that is the thinner appearing person, you would potentially, well, we're not going to make the assumption, but some one might make the assumption that they are healthier inherently because of their size. However, it could be the opposite. They could have Mm -hmm. hyperlipidemia. They could be a diabetic. Who knows, right? You have no idea. Mm -hmm. You're really making me think of a particular person who I've seen battle this on social media. It seems like over and over and over again. And her Instagram is constantly filled with body positivity and I am thankful for it often. And that's the very talented Lizzo. And people are always up in her comments being like, how can you be a role model for our children when you're so fat? You're so fat. You are, you know, demonstrating an unhealthy lifestyle to our children. Unhealthy. That woman gets on stage every night for multiple nights in a row, traveling all around the country and the world, does hour-long sets with intense singing, intense dancing, and has the breath control to play concert flute, and yet someone is out there saying that she is not an example of health? Rude. The audacity. And I am so thrilled that you brought Lizzo into this conversation because I feel like she is like the epitome idol in this movement and in proving our point here that healthy does come at every size and there is no indications that Lizzo is unhealthy. Have you seen her workout routine? Have you seen what she eats? She is a queen in every aspect of her life on and she off. She just the- has an atypical body type to what we're used to seeing as a person in the media and beauty standards. Right. And I mean, that's a whole other topic and I'm not going to go on a rampage about that now, but season two, season two, but (laughs) yeah, Lizzo is the perfect example of this. Again, I can't think of anyone who can sing like her dance, like her and play the flute, like her all in a night back to back nights. Yes. Agreed. So Let's bring it back to medicine. This week's case is actually going to be an homage to our podcast name and the doctor who inspired my fondness for medical mystery puzzles. It is Dr. Lisa Sanders. Love Dr. Sanders. Yes, she is an American physician and clinical educator in the primary care internal medicine residency program at Yale. And not only is she a successful doctor and educator, she is also an author and a journalist. And back in 2002, she began writing a column called Diagnosis for a little magazine. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called the New York Times. Isn't that that also a docuseries on Netflix, Hillary? Yes, you might be familiar with the Netflix adaptation of her column. It was also called Diagnosis, and it was a docuseries that followed seven different patients and their mysterious, strange, and rare medical conditions. And her column really covered medical mystery cases from her patients as well as her colleagues. And it eventually developed into a place where patients with unsolved medical questions went to looking for answers. 
And Dr. Sanders really is unique in that she realized crowdsourcing for a diagnosis was beneficial in these rare cases, and it helped her find answers for many patients. She has a website called crowdmed.com, and it's a place where patients can go to post their symptoms or their case, as well that doctors can go to, to try and help provide answers and try to solve these cases. And that rush of solving a complicated medical mystery is definitely rewarding. And not only to doctors, because her column also went on to inspire a popular TV show called House MD, which she was also a consultant on. Now, if you are a House MD fan as much as I am, you'll be familiar with a very popular and common line it's not lupus. And this is really in reference to the disease systemic lupus erythematosus, which is an autoimmune disease where the body's own immune system attacks healthy tissue. And it happens in many different parts of the body. And because it happens in lots of different places, it has a wide range of symptoms and presentation. And it really varies between individuals. So two people with lupus can look totally different in their symptom picture. And lupus has actually been known in the medical community as the great imitator because it often mimics other illnesses. So basically, if you're trying to diagnose someone with a nonspecific and vague symptom picture, an autoimmune disorder like lupus should be ruled out. And if you listened actually to episode one on breast implant illness, you might recognize some of these autoimmune type mimicking symptoms. So I imagine over the future of this podcast, you will hear us say it's probably not lupus, at least more than once. So back to the case. This week, we are going to use a case from House MD, and it's from season one. It's episode 16, and it's titled Heavy if you want to check it out. Of course, after you're done listening to this podcast, you have to finish it here first and then go watch it on the TV drama. As you heard in the teaser, it is a 10-year-old girl named Jessica who presents to the emergency department after suffering a heart attack in gym class. Once she was in the emergency department, the doctors began to do more further investigations and they find out that she had actually been having muscle pains, fatigue, and difficulty concentrating for over a year. And those nonspecific symptoms might sound similar to those pesky autoimmune symptoms that I talked about. They also find out that Jessica has been seen by several pediatricians, multiple nutritionists, and psychologists who all cleared her for any medical cause to explain these vague symptoms she had. And instead, all of them said that her concerns were explained by her being overweight. As you remember at the beginning of the episode, she was quite short. She's at four foot one and she's 170 pounds for a 10 year old girl. This drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, they did do some medical workup. So they looked to make sure that she didn't have hypothyroidism or diabetes or any other autoimmune disease that might explain her symptoms. So because they couldn't figure it out in the ER, Jessica was admitted to the internal medicine floor of the hospital where a team of doctors, house's team of doctors, could try and figure out what caused this 10-year-old to suffer a heart attack. And although she presented with high blood pressure as well, it was not high enough to explain a 10-year-old having a heart attack. And if you remember back to the teaser again, generally these types of heart attacks are caused by decades of poor lifestyle. So decades of overeating and smoking, drinking. Jessica's only 10 years old. I mean, even if she ate crap, quote unquote, every day of her life, it's not enough time for her to build up this 
the clogged arteries and the hypertension or high blood pressure that would precipitate a heart attack. So they started to make a differential list and they started to add some other things on there that could explain why Jessica had her heart attack. One of them was because of diet pills. So they assumed because she was so overweight, she must be depressed. And definitely that could have explained her symptoms. But it's interesting that that's where they went to first, just because she's overweight. Oh, because she's fat, she must be unhappy. And because she's unhappy, she must be abusing some sort of medication to try and get thinner. What a thought that fat people can be happy. Yeah, very that. So finally, the doctors agree that perhaps there is a medical cause for her symptom, and that's called metabolic syndrome X. And metabolic syndrome X is kind of like reverse diabetes, I guess you can think of it. It's where you don't respond normally to insulin, which causes the body to release too much. So generally diabetes is too little insulin. If you're a type one diabetic, your pancreas doesn't make it enough, but this is too much insulin. Now, what's nice for people who have metabolic syndrome X is that the treatment for this disease is diet and exercise. And when the team of doctors present this to Jessica and her mother in the hospital, Jessica's mother is very upset because she says, if diet and exercise are the treatment, your diagnosis is wrong because we have already been doing that for over a year. As you recall, she had seen several nutritionists already. She was exercising every day, not only in school, but outside of school as well. And none of that was having any effect on her weight. And she still had a heart attack. So the doctors did the test and it revealed that uh, metabolic syndrome X was not the cause of her heart attack. Now, unfortunately, or also luckily, I suppose, suddenly Jessica's symptoms get much more serious. She suffers from a temporary bout of psychosis and then starts to develop severe skin ulcers and her skin actually starts to die. So she has skin necrosis. These are terribly painful skin ulcers, and they are also life-threatening because of the risk of infection due to their widespread nature. So the team of doctors reviews Jessica's case again, and they start to look more closely at her BMI. Okay, yes, she is overweight. She's only four foot one, and she's 170 pounds. But not only is she heavy at 170 pounds, she's short. So although she's in the 99th percentile for her weight, if we're talking about these big group stats again, she's only in the 40th percentile for her height. Also, her doctors note that her mother is quite tall, over six feet tall. So finally, one of Jessica's doctors views her obesity as a symptom of her disease and not the cause of her disease. The doctors paint this picture, stunted growth, high blood pressure, obesity, and skin ulcers. All of a sudden, it seems embarrassingly obvious what the diagnosis is. Care to enlighten us, Emma? I would love to tell you that this diagnosis is Cushing's disease. So, yes. So Cushing's disease is most commonly caused by a pituitary adenoma, which is medical fancy big language for a specific type of brain tumor in the pituitary gland. Normally, the pituitary gland is helpful in regulating important functions such as growth, blood pressure, and reproduction, as it signals the release of many hormones. A tumor here can cause the pituitary glands to release said hormones improperly, like telling the body to release cortisol, our main stress hormone. Cortisol, as we know it, can go on to affect a series of systems in the body if not properly regulated. All of Jessica's symptoms could be explained by excess cortisol in her body. 
Now there's one problem. After all the doctor visits over the last year, high cortisol, which would be indicative of the correct diagnosis that you gave Emma of Cushing disease, was not found on labs. And here I want to take a moment to talk again about making sure you're treating the patient in front of you, the individual who's sitting in front of you. Lab tests don't always catch diseases, especially when we're talking about hormones, because hormones are pulsatile in nature. They're not constant. And if you're just taking a sample here or a sample there, and you might not be catching a blood sample or a urine sample or a salivary sample when the cortisol is elevated. But her doctors didn't give up on her and they ordered imaging of her brain to confirm their suspicion. And lucky for Jessica, the MRI revealed a tumor in her pituitary gland, which did confirm Cushing's. And the treatment for Cushing's is to have surgery. Now it is brain surgery. But lucky for her, she survived the brain surgery and the surgery was curative for her Cushing's disease. So for over a year, this girl suffered from a serious disease that every single doctor overlooked because of her weight. By treating her weight as the cause of her symptoms instead of a symptom of a disease, she was not provided the care she needed in the time she needed it. This bias in medicine, especially in relation to female patients, is changing, but we still have a long way to go. What a great case presentation. Thank you so much for that. And I think this bias that they receive to not getting the treatment they need and this and being dismissed constantly makes individuals less inclined to seek medical care when they seriously or emergently need it. Yes. Because they think, oh, you know, I've caused this injury or I have this ulcer or whatever. Oh, they're going to write me off again. And that I still won't get the care, which is just such a terrible thought process. However, it's a real life thing that happens. And this poor 10 year old girl, imagine being in her position and already being on a strict diet and exercise regimen with no results, because this is what the doctor said caused your issues. That's got to be tough. No kidding. And imagine knowing that you suffered for over a year because the doctors couldn't see beyond your size at only age 10. That doesn't set you up for a lifetime full of success and trust, I don't feel like, from the people who you should trust the most, your healthcare professionals. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Probably Not Lupus podcast. We're so happy to have you back. And we see the numbers on our publication app. We see you guys listening. Going and up. yeah, we appreciate it. We hope you enjoy what it is we're doing. I did want to put a call out. Although I enjoy talking about the cases that we find online, I also enjoy interviewing people with interesting medical cases. So if you have an interesting medical case or you had one in the past that you want to share about, like a couple of our other guests in prior episodes, please reach out to us. We have a website, probablynotlupus.com, where you can contact us there and let us know if you want to share. We would love to hear from you because as fun as it is presenting these cases and talking to each other about them and learning from each other, it's also really fun to have friends along. It helps people remember the cases when there's a person attached to it, when it's not just a statistic, when it's not just a number out here in the ether, but it's grounded 
real attached to a human. So if you want to share, reach out, you can stay anonymous. If you like, send us an email. We'll talk about it. Absolutely. Can't wait to see you next week. See you all next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Spotify, Google, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube at Probably Not Lupus. Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone in our bedrooms. (laughs) I love that.